Welcome, you're listening to the Brainy Speech Therapist podcast. Here we explore all things related to brain injury with a focus on the role of speech and language therapy within this exciting and ever-changing area. We're your hosts, Helen McLean and Jan McIntosh-Brown. Hi everyone, I'm Jan. Welcome to our episode. I'm Helen. Uh, Yeah, welcome. This is part two of our multi-part episode all about single case experimental design. Go check out the first part if you've not listened to it yet. Hopefully that will make this upcoming episode make a bit more sense. Um, So if you have listened to it, we've got a short message and then we'll get right back into the episode. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are of the individual and should not be considered professional advice. If you have a brain injury, suspect you have a brain injury, or think someone you know has a brain injury, please seek dedicated professional advice. Yeah, so Helen, you, I mean, you know, we work in different environments, so I do, I do often have the flexibility to sort of change how I provide services. However, in your setting, you know, you pro- it would probably be unheard of for you to provide an intensive. Yeah, program. I mean, yeah. Would you think about maybe different treatment? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it is like... interesting listening to to how you're kind of approaching that and thinking through right, how could I maybe develop some, um, you know develop a kind of research project around this person um it's it's fair to say that you and I we work in different um areas don't we you know I I am NHS and you're you're um, based with a charity so I I suppose there's a different degree of kind of flexibility there that um that you have versus myself and um that's just that's how the how it is um so yeah yeah, I think it's it's interesting because a lot of what you're talking about is maybe not necessarily what we in the NHS would recognise as as research, but maybe there are things that we maybe not necessarily look at in terms of single case designs, but we might look at what can we do to improve the maybe the quality of the service that we're providing, um, or overarching kind of themes in terms of improving aspects of, of service. Um, so I think it's maybe a, a similar vein to what you're talking about but we might in the NHS just have slightly different names for it um, and so for okay. example we might look at um, not so much what can we do with that one person and doing the kind of ABAB design that you're talking about because I think that would be maybe quite tricky to do within um, an NHS setting unless we went forward for um, you know, funding and ethics approval. Um, and I, I wonder if that might be something that you, you might speak to, Brian. Mm. Differences between the NHS and, and for example, kind of um, other rehab settings where that mm. might not be as much of a barrier, for example. But I think it's interesting, hopefully, I'm sure there's lots of people listening to this who do work for the NHS who might be thinking, right, how would I apply that in that in, in my setting? Um I mean, I don't know what what would you say, Brian, in terms of kind of barriers to research, and and do you think that they exist in different sectors? Okay, um, and and uh, you you work in the community setting as well, so yeah, you're kind of delivering yeah. your rehabilitation in the community. 
Um, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that does um, create some barriers, certainly, to, um, to data gathering, because uh, mm -hmm. you're, you're necessarily kind of seeing people, um, you know, and getting a snapshot for how they're doing at the time you see them. Um, where I've done research in the community, um, what I've often done is almost kind of co-opted a family member into this kind of um, experimental approach so that uh, they might be the person who's making a daily rating or making a daily count and the number of times that someone does something that we'd rather they didn't do or uh, did something that we'd rather they did more of um, mm -hmm. to see if our intervention was, was uh, making a difference. Um, that's that, a really interesting you know, idea. Yeah, I think I think yeah. perhaps certainly um, myself and I'm sure lots of my community colleagues would say that we try and utilise family members, but maybe not consciously in in the pursuit of um, enhancing the evidence base or, or research. But that's an interesting point to consider, actually. Mm -hmm. And increasingly as well, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're, we're surrounded by technology that is uh, mm -hmm. data gathering. Uh, and you know sharing that data with google uh, but <laughs> we, we could use that as well so i'm just thinking of the, the basic step counter uh, so again mm -hmm. is this is maybe more something that a physiotherapist would uh, maybe uh, gain from they're looking at kind of count uh, uh, overcome deconditioning they might mm -hmm. be able to look at you know um how much how many steps was a person taking over the course of the day then try an intervention which is motivational or um, paying them for getting over a certain number of steps <laughs> or having them reward themselves for getting over a certain number of steps mm. and then seeing if that mm -hmm. increases the steps and if that's maintained um so yeah, that, yeah that's, it's, that's it's a bit thinking outside the box of it then isn't it and thinking that we've got other ways of utilizing information around us yeah yeah and you know um yeah i'm i'm, I'm trying to think of ways well we could look at you know whether the, the, the benefits of actually having a speech therapy mm -hmm. i don't know helen how often once a week come and visit for a period versus more of a home-based yeah. partner providing the training or self-training and see see if having the speech yeah, therapist and, come and, is and I think it's interesting Making nowadays. Making a significant difference. Um, more teletherapy going on and more kind of video appointments and things, you know, looking at uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, the impact of uh -huh. that versus maybe the direct feedback from the family member or something. Um, and yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. Um, because there's lots of apps now that you could use to self-direct so is it self-directed practice? Mm -hmm. Is that better than having mm -hmm. a virtual yeah. session with a speech yeah. and language therapist? I, I, I've actually know? just thought of like a way of develop, sorry, uh, develop, uh, taking repeated measures of someone. So mm. loads of people now carry devices yep. around that have voice recognition on them. Um, you can, on just basic word program on your computer now, you can um, have it recognize the voice. So if someone's speaking in a dysarthric way, you could have them just speak to words, you know, on a mm -hmm. daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, and then yeah. by looking at the number of speech recognition errors that the computer is making, that could be just a, a, an independent um, assessment of uh, yeah. yes. the computer's rating. Level of <laughs> 
and I think that's such an, an interesting point yeah. because I can think of one or two cases that I've had or people with dysarthria who maybe do use their Echo Dot or their Alexa or whatever device um, and they maybe just can uh, report that oh, I'm starting to find it easier to use that now, I'm not having to repeat myself more, but there's ah. just that interesting point of taking it to the next stage of turning it actually into something that is a bit of a single case design, yeah. isn't it? So I think I think for me it's I'm very much that person who maybe doesn't even realise that you're doing things that are single case designs. But listening to you, Brian, I'm thinking, oh, actually, I can maybe think of lots of examples of people you've you've done this without even really yeah. putting that label on it, which is which is interesting. Yeah. And I would love to hear if people are listening to this if they may be having a similar light bulb moment. Um, mm-hmm. do, do you, well, it is. It well, is. It's exciting. Well, maybe to emphasise this uh, a little bit more. Um, one of the people who really influenced me in my thinking and actually provided some of the statistical tools that I used in, in the early days um, was John Todman. And John Todman, uh, he, he's now deceased, a really great guy who worked at the University of Dundee. And he worked in the computer science department, but he worked with um, speech and language therapists looking at um, how people fared Ooh. with various pieces of, pieces of then very expensive AAC. So he was motivated to show that, you know, for example, people had more conversations with the AAC than when they hadn't that support. Um, and then kind of was able to demonstrate, you know, in, in, in a robust and rigorous way that they were enjoying a greater quality of life because they were having more conversations. Um, mm-hmm. And then demonstrated that using single case experimental designs. Um his son Jonathan has, um, I think, like edited and republished um, some of his um, his his work. Now, um, I think it may have the catchy title "Randomization Tests for Single Case Experimental Design." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm excited! I can't wait to get a copy. Well, no, um, why? Why I was really excited about. I got a copy. It was. Um, and it came with a CD back in the days when you could load programs onto computers. Uh, and on the uh, on the CD were loads of Excel files that did the stats for you. Oh, that's what I wanted to ask about. Thank you so much, Brian. Oh, okay. So, I mean, question. yeah, Keep so going. John, I mean, so I would say that uh, John Todman and Pat Dugard um, in, in, you know, speech and language therapy and uh, computer science actually began this kind of work for, for me. Anyway, they were the first people I came across doing uh, statistical tests on this. So, Brian, I, I do have this question about um, what we do with our data. However, I know that Helen asked a, a couple of other questions within her question. So what would you like to do first? Would you like to go back to Helen's other questions or jump into data first? Um, yeah, let's talk about data and then we'll go back and talk about ethics and how okay. clinical research kind of relates to service development. Okay, awesome. Okay. So I, I, I just am aware that we talked about gathering the data, having people recording um, people's speech intelligibility scores. What do we do after that? You know, I mean, I, people may not have, you know, psychology team or research teams to help them. Mm-hmm. Well, um, there are some really useful resources that, you know, I was pointed in the direction of, okay. um, you know, at various times. Um, 
one that I'll, I'll share with you because it, it kind of has a, a good amount on the methodology, but also has some online calculators. Yay! For <laughs> and uh, they're free to use, uh, which is also uh, good within uh, uh, cash strap services. So uh, <laughs> www.singlecaseresearch.org is yeah, okay. a not-for-profit uh, site that kind of gives you access to some kind of theory uh, and some basic information about how to design tests, design uh, experiments, but also then um, how to process your data, how to analyze it. Uh, one of the stats that I found useful over the years is called the non-overlap of all pairs. Um, and I won't go into the details of it, but okay. that it, it, it is easy to do. You, you literally put your data from each phase into columns uh, in this uh, online uh, calculator um, mm -hmm. and then press calculate it's that easy mm. and it gives okay. you kind of some yeah um, some, uh, a lot of stats that you have to then kind of like make sense of but uh, there there is work by um, uh, a, a pair called Parker and Van Est and they've kind of written uh, some papers that really make it easy to interpret um, the data that you get okay yeah and then I guess, I mean, I think we all feel like research, publish a paper. I, I, I guess I don't feel like any of the projects that, I, that I've personally been um, attempting to complete are, are research paper quality yet. Is, is it likely to, like, you know, how can we build on that, Brian? Mm -hmm. Get our, yep. Well, you know, over... It is it is difficult to get like a single case um, out there, uh -huh. but you know you might have <clears throat> this person with dysarthria. Sorry, I've got a frog in my throat. Pardon me. Um, you might have this person with dysarthria that uh, responds to your intervention, and uh -huh. then you know a year down the line you have another person with dysarthria and a kind of quiet voice who also responds, and by pooling those two. And mm -hmm. given that they've you've randomized the kind of lengths of baseline and intervention and stuff like that, then those two together will t tell a very uh, re more robust story than the single case in itself. Okay. And okay. you get the same pattern of response to the intervention or the more intense intervention, for example. Okay. So do you need to keep your um, your your control your measurements the same? So have have some con similarity between the studies yeah <clears throat> and that's why it's kind of useful to, to pick out a few things that are measuring what you yeah. say they're measuring uh, and intelligibility measured by someone being in, able to interpret what a person is saying okay. is a good example um, okay so, so you'd yeah. use the same rating scale you'd use the same sort of one minute recording randomized presenting it to one or two members of staff who were not familiar and yeah yeah okay hmm. it all sounds so simple doesn't it, it? does <laughs> <laughs> but i think it's but, but what I would say that's interesting is, like you said there, you might have one person at one point you've done your single case study and then you might have another person six months or a year down the line and you, you that's a similar presentation, you do the same again. Uh -huh. This is the long game that you're uh -huh. playing then, isn't it? And it just goes to show how long it can take to build a body of evidence for, for something. And, um, and just to play devil's advocate again as, as a working clinician, I think we, 
that that can become tricky to do, can't it? Yeah, yes. I mean, there are time costs to this. Um, and I guess that's where, you know, colleagues in university can also be really helpful. Um, mm. That, you know, quite often there are, you know, students who have to do little pieces of research um, for their doctorate in clinical psychology and maybe um, in speech therapy that there is clinical research now required. I, I, I don't know what the training program's like, but um, you may find resource in a student who could help you with the write-up mm. so you do the clinical research and they can maybe help you write it up which would be mm. good for you both mm. um, yeah. students yes. tend to be more time rich than the typical nhs employee <laughs> <laughs> i don't know they would agree with you there but uh... <laughs> but they definitely have uh, more resources available and if they can use it as a project to achieving their degree um, then there's there's motivation there for them, isn't there? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then yeah. you know they're learning as well, so it's a it's a win win situation. I think when we involve people who are yeah. who are training. And and I guess I guess there's also opportunity to publish your studies in smaller level sort of articles. So for example, the Royal College has the mm -hmm. bulletin, no, it's just the and you often. Yeah, you often see, um, you know, small research projects within the bulletin. So it builds your confidence a little bit doing it that way yeah, too. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm thinking of things where you back in the day when we could all attend conferences and there would be posters uh -huh. and things like that. Do you know Bloody that? that would, yeah, remember that. Um, but that, that would often be an opportunity, wouldn't it, to kind of just share what people are doing. And, and yeah. And you might find out that someone at a different um, trust or a different rehab centre somewhere else now has been just, doing a similar thing. You've made me think of something um, because, sorry, this is this um, just random thoughts that come to my mind of an idea of um, aphasia access as an American mm -hmm. organisation and they're doing like a you know like five minute presentations from people on mm. you know webinars and you know we could do something like that not on this podcast but in another format of having people you know doing five minute presentations on small research projects they've been doing somehow yeah. Although, uh, maybe a, maybe an episode in a year someone time. else can start up the <laughs> <laughs> Just but, really but maybe maybe we could have maybe we could have a roundabout um episode or something and have people come on and tell us what they've done yeah in the last twelve months you know something like that yeah. um if it's okay to to maybe jump back to the the kind of ethics and service development yeah. type questions if that's okay Brian yeah. um I, I just I, I, like I was kind of saying in terms of being an NHS employee knowing that you want to be working from the evidence base that's already there and potentially trying to put forward doing some research that's maybe not um, part of the, the norm, part of the standardised battery of, of interventions that you maybe use. What advice would you give to someone who's maybe kind of having a wee bit of an uphill battle in terms of getting ethics approval or, or even starting that? Because I think sometimes the words ethics approval can make people turn away from the whole notion of research before they've even started. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, obviously, to you know, be a practitioner, be a scientist practitioner, you, you need to you know keep ethics to the fore of your mind. And mm-hmm. there are online uh, resources where you can see if your idea for an intervention, uh, be it single case or between group study, qualifies as research. And mm. some of the questions there are really important. Um, it's, are you depriving someone of something that they would otherwise get? Mm. So that like, if, if you are somehow taking from them what is like, or providing a lesser intensity, then that, that's uh, an issue. But if you are, um, you know, um, not randomly assigning someone to get treatment or not get treatment, then that removes a lot of the ethical barriers. And so a lot of single case experimental designs can um, can be conducted without formal research ethics um, kind of uh, approval. The reason for this is that you as a clinician are kind of reviewing the literature and you can see that like for this person that what is normally done is probably not going to work. But that you've got this clinical hunch and your clinical judgment is that more intense intervention will bring about more of a. Uh, a, a change uh, you can then try that out you and so where do you find that information Brian um, I want to say the oh, yeah, yeah. The, the National Institute for Health Research okay uh, has an online okay. kind of uh, yeah you may want to fact check that <laughs> but uh, the national <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what I remember yeah we'll double check that if any of our listeners know they can let us okay. know um, and I guess what I'm hearing you say is that so for for Helen's situation if 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 we were looking at um, virtual sessions with speech and language therapists versus you know um, self-directed practice it could be that you're going okay well we're going to take some measurements while I'm actively involved with this person and then take some measurements after they've just been like you know on a therapy break which was planned anyway yeah Yeah. I think that's yeah I think that that's a really helpful resource to um to know about Uh, I think I think that um and NIHR um if we're, if we're all thinking of the same thing um it's one of those resources that you know is there but maybe don't often get the chance to have a look at so this is hopefully the benefit of something like this podcast where it reminds you of things that are out there that just sparks an idea and you can go and double check that um so, no that's really yeah. helpful Brian. Um, can I just uh, well ask a question um, of you guys as podcasters? Is it okay to admit that I've been googling as we're talking? And that maybe oh, <laughs> okay. of course. <laughs> I... <laughs> we're adult learners. We don't keep everything in our oh, heads. Okay. We we have to. We just know okay. to find things. And so I, was... I I did a search while we we're talking there for National Institute for Health uh-huh. Research. Is this research? And and it came up with nihr.ac.uk. So it does seem to exist. Okay. Um, so. Um, remove that need for fact checking. That's <laughs> fine. Really okay. okay. <laughs> so your brain was accurate. Um, and so there was a, another question we were going to talk about. I'm conscious of the time. So, um, yeah. I think, was so, it just, I think what I was just, um, I mean, you'll notice, Brian, I'm not, uh, sometimes my thoughts contain a question, sometimes it's just existential output. Uh, <laughs> Thinking, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, I suppose, again, just working in the NHS, I know that maybe what we might not necessarily call research, but I think what I was what I was labelling it was things like we're looking at service improvement or quality improvement projects. And I know in the, in the NHS, um, certainly in the, the board that I'm in, um, quality improvement and service improvement are um, big deals. And that's what we would maybe call it but it's um, not entirely different from what you've talked about in terms of single case design. It's just the idea of a notion of will something work and you're taking it through a specific process, whatever that process might be. So I suppose what I would want to maybe kind of demonstrate to our listeners is that actually if you're a therapist listening to this, you can do some research, or, but I don't know where to begin. You are probably doing doing it to some degree and you're on the right lines even if it's not necessarily something that might be ready for publication in a journal um would you say that there's a big difference between the notion of something like service development and clinical research Mm -hmm. okay now i think that you know any therapist or person working um you know to rehabilitate other people um will have a feeling you'll kind of develop a kind of clinical now so over time they feel like actually the way that i used to do this or the way i was taught to do this is not as effective as this other way mm. so you can either do that then in an audit cycle where you kind of you measure everybody who's getting that kind of treatment currently and then you change your practice and you measure them again and see if there's a difference now that's like a uh it's like a really it's a poor quality like audit can sometimes be poor quality research and I don't mean to say this like with any kind of offense to people involved in audit but um it serves a different different purpose purpose. yeah (laughs) so that but if you have a pet theory or a a pet you know a a, a hypothesis a a, you know belief that you know things could be different um in in a different you know if done differently you might then say, right, in this next person who comes through with this problem, I'm going to do what is the done thing and then do it at greater intensity or, you know, with this, this mm-hmm. addition that I've been working on, consenting that person that you are going to introduce something that is different um, and that they're up for trying this new thing um, mm-hmm. and then see how that works. So again, you know, to, the other thing, uh, about ethics is well it's in the face isn't it you're kind of saying I want to do this thing are you okay with that and you, mm-hmm. you know inform them that you know the uh, you know the risks of undergoing speech language therapy are generally quite low um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that they... you know, that's worth pointing out isn't it you know the, the things that we're talking about are um, yeah low risk inter- yeah. interventions in the grand scheme of things yeah 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 but then yeah. you know, uh, you know, Jan and I have worked on um, some interventions that you know we had to carefully kind of say, you know, we really would like you to see how you come across and see what effect that has on your mm-hmm. social communication, and mm-hmm. then, um, and you know, we do now kind of inform people that you know sometimes seeing yourself as you are since your brain injury and how you communicate, it, it may not be that pleasant. Mm-hmm. But, but we think it would be mm-hmm. really important for you to kind of like learn from that experience and move forward from it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, yeah, I remember, that's really yeah, I remember the first time that I saw myself speaking after drinking too much coffee. Yeah. Someone <laughs> <recorded me. laughs> 
pretty much stopped me drinking too much coffee. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll have to have you on as a guest in the future, Brian, and we can um, talk about other aspects of uh, working with people with brain injuries because I'm, I'm sure we've got lots of stories to share. Um, okay, so... So do we feel like we've explored this topic, at least to a very surface level, dip our toe mm -hmm. in the water type level? I think I, so, I, yeah. Yeah, if you're yeah. happy with, with the kind of level we've chatted about things as a first first time recording yeah. anyway, well, you'll be a frequent, a frequent yeah. guest, if, uh, unless you're thinking, of oh, this is awful. <laughs> no, it's been it's if you're doing a competing you know, it's been really, really pleasant uh, you know, talking to you both. Uh, I hope I haven't uh, you know, gone down too nerdy a route at times. Oh, but... no, I don't think so. I think you've kept it very yeah, well. We've got one last wee bit that we need to cover and then that's yeah. Uh, then we can we yeah. can kind of pop over. And it's something that we ask okay. everybody. So yep. everyone who who comes on um, we ask them to give us one kind of key idea or tip that they would like to highlight so Brian what's one key piece of advice or key idea that you'd like to give our listeners if they're considering undertaking some research oh key idea so I'm probably going to end up quoting you know Professor Shane O'Mara from Trinity you know, do everything for a reason um, so that like a lot of what we a lot of what we do is um, accepted on authority. Somebody once said, mm -hmm. do it like this. And I think that questioning that every now and then leads to really useful steps forward mm -hmm. in our disciplines. Um, and, you know, those ideas for how to change will, will come to you. And you'll either have mm -hmm. them and then just change your practice and then you'll be a better therapist, but nobody else will. But if you can evidence that your idea makes a difference, you can change practice and move the whole discipline forward. Mm. Oh, that sounds exciting. That's a, yeah, that's a lovely way to, to bring the episode to a close, actually. I feel I feel very inspired, Brian. Oh, yes, oh, I'm yes. really glad. Yes. Well, <laughs> so thank you so much thank for Thank you so much us for having me. It's um, uh, been a pleasure. You're, you are most welcome and um yep we will speak to everybody again yes yeah, thank you very much take, take care, care. Bye. Bye -bye. Bye.